0: This week, uh, especially with Tony Abbott in London, I wish he'd take some of the advice he gave me. He left a phone message for me a couple of weeks ago saying, Hinch, shut the F up. I wish he'd do the same. (laughs) Is it on? Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr Putin.
1: I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. No, wait, it, it is on?
2: Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am.
1: I don't like it.
2: Oh, fair
3: shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, may we say God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 26 of BuzzFeed Australia's political podcast, Is It On? We are recording this on the morning of Friday the 13th of October. Ooh. Um, My name is Alice (laughs) Blackman and I'm in Canberra. Joining me from Sydney is Lane Sainty. Lane Hello, happy Friday the 13th.
3: Alice, hello. I'm so happy to be here on this spooky morning.
1: And I should say a big thank you to the human headline, Darren Hinch, for that fantastic opening grab. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's pretty weird. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is. Now, I just um, saw
3: it and was like, well done.
1: Now, Lane, I have a bone to pick with you. Yeah. So my mother heard you on the radio last week and you had said that you had not returned your postal survey form have, even oh though you no. got it, I know you got it a few weeks ago, Lane, have you put that ballot in the mail yet?
3: I haven't yet.
1: La- Lane! <laughs> Lane, saying I,
3: um, oh, look, I, I feel like my reasons for not doing so are actually like a bit more complex than pure laziness and not, <laughs> may, maybe not suitable to be explained on the podcast, but you know, it's, it's, it's not there. I, I haven't done it for a reason um are you not going to yeah. send it anyway no I, I am going to send it okay um but i have a number of people reminding me regularly that it is time to send it in so trust me guys i know the deadline. don't
1: prove the boomers right put that in the mail
3: <laughs> what's what's the mail i don't can, understand what the mail If you is.
1: want you can bring it to canberra and we can put it in the parliament house post box
3: Mm, mm, which we have tried to post letters in before and, and regrettably discovered that it was closed because we didn't go there for the entire day until like 7.30pm, um, as is life in Canberra. Oh, um, Canberra. But okay, well, you know, that, that's an alright bone to pick with me. You can, you can pick it with me occasionally if you want. Anyway, Alice, mov- moving on from, from this, uh, what's in the show this week? Following up from
1: something I've been forward sizzling for the last two weeks, we finally meet the new leader of the Victorian Greens... <laughs> Who is At last <laughs> Who is the party's first female leader and the youngest ever leader? And as I discovered while chatting with her this week, possibly the first Tamil political leader in Australia. Samantha Ratnam is hmm. her name, and I will speak to her a little bit later.
3: And also, Alice, I spoke to our UK politics correspondent. Our what? Our man on the ground in London. Who? Alice, he used to host this podcast. I've no idea who you're talking about. Alice Mark to <laughs> Oh, okay. All right. I guess. Okay. He couldn't
1: stay away. He's living in London now, hanging out in bars, drinking gin and tonics with conservatives. Well, that's what it says on his Twitter account, anyway. Um, that's great. Awesome. So does uh, it actually? Yeah, he was tweeting from the Tory conference. he's drinking conference. gin and tonics
3: with conservatives. He
1: was like, "It's oh, okay, two a.m. Okay. and I'm in a bar, <laughs> and these and conservatives are drinking gin and tonics and playing competitive speed chess." Or something
3: okay. I thought you meant he'd like changed his bio to drinking gin and tonics with <laughs> conservatives, and I was like, Come on, Mark. No, 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 actually, just <laughs> anyway, just, just actually all right, doing the hangout. Right. Um, but yes, Alice, I wanted to find out if all the rumors are true and that if Mark Stefano has actually brought the is it on curse from Canberra to the UK?
1: Okay, well, we've got heaps to get through, so let's kick off with this week's fast five, and number one is. The Citizenship Seven Although Sean Kelly from The Monthly is calling them The Dopey Seven, which I think Is a lot more app So I'm talking of course about the seven Australian politicians Who could have been foreigners, which sounds like A really shit spin-off to the could have been Champions. They were back in the High Court This week for three days worth of hearings Let's run it through them again. Barnaby Joyce Deputy PM and Nationals Leader, his dad was a Kiwi. Fiona Nash, Deputy Nationals Leader his da- Her dad was Scottish Matt Canavan, the National Senator, his grandparents were Italian. Nick Xenophon, his dad was a Brit via Cyprus, One Nation's Malcolm Roberts, born in India, but a Brit via his Welsh dad, Green Senator Larissa Waters, born in Canada, and Green Scott Ludlam, born in New Zealand. Now, the key message from the High Court this week, Lane, is ignorance is not an excuse. <laughs> now, the government are arguing that only Malcolm Roberts and Scott Ludlam should go because they were born overseas and they can't plead ignorance. But there was an interesting strategy this week by the Greens. They basically argued that they were both, they recognised that both of them were invalid and they agreed they should be struck off, even though the government are arguing that Rissa Waters should be allowed to stay. It's all bizarre. Um, <laughs> We've got a different story from Matt Canavan. He's previously blamed his mum. Then he kind of seemed to blame his grandma but then uh, we, then this week he kind of claimed that he actually wasn't an Italian at all, even though when he resigned from Cabinet in July, he said, according to the Italian government, I am an Italian citizen. But then his lawyers spent all of this week arguing about the complexities of Italian law, and that means that he might not actually be a citizen. Very bizarre. Um, okay. Xenophon's lawyers uh, argued this week that he should be fine because he has a subclass of citizenship, so he's classified as an overseas Brit, not a fully-fledged Brit, and he doesn't have the right of, of entry or or the right to live there. So that shouldn't disqualify him because if you can't enter a country, how do you have allegiances to that foreign power? But of course... The highlights of the three days of hearings went to Malcolm Roberts, whose lawyers just kept going off on the strangers of tangents. And they basically said that uh, he was being held up to the mystic powers of the High Court. They argued (laughs) that when Roberts became a citizen in 74, Britain was not a foreign power because both countries had the same head of state, that's right, the Queen. His lawyer also argued that it was un-Australian to recognise a difference between natural-born Australians, so people that were born in Australia, and people that became naturalised... All right,
3: Malcolm Roberts.
1: (laughs) There's a whole bunch of interesting questions that the High Court have to consider. Should natural-born Australians be spared any problem under Section 44 while naturalised ones or immigrant Australians uh, incur all the obligations? Should a politician know he or she has ever been a foreign citizen? And could a politician be safe from Section 44 even if they are a dual citizen, if they've never exercised the right to foreign citizenship. So is it okay if you've been sitting away like Barnaby Joyce as a dual, but you've never known it and you've never tried to actually get anything out of the other country or act on behalf of the other country? So... Um, the decision's going to take uh, some weeks or potentially some months. We don't know. They haven't given us any kind of indication. Um, but as the Chief Justice said yesterday, the court is aware of the need to expedite the outcome as we do have a sitting week next week. And if there needs to be a by-election, we need to know soon.
3: What is number two? It is Tony Abbott. Uh, And in a headline that I think will make satire writers across Australia weep, he has said global warming is saving lives because people die in the cold.
1: Lane, he is not wrong.
3: (laughs) But he gave a speech in London this week in which he suggested climate change is probably doing good. The speech was called Daring to Doubt, and it was at the London-based climate sceptic think tank called the Global Warming Party Foundation. So basically at this speech, Abbott, he repeated his... Uh, 2009 sentiment that the science of climate change is absolute crap, he said that policies to deal with climate change are like primitive people once killing goats to appease the volcano gods and that they will damage the economy. He also said, and I quote, In most countries, far more people die in cold snaps than in heat waves. So a gradual lift in global temperature, especially if it's accompanied by more prosperity and more capacity to adapt to change, might even be beneficial. So, a lot of hot air from Abbott there. But the good news is his trip was apparently privately funded, so not on the taxpayer dollar. More importantly this week, Federal Energy Minister Josh Frydenberg indicated that the government doesn't intend to follow Australia's chief scientist's recommendation that it should implement a clean energy target because of the falling cost of renewables and the industry was just looking for stability, not a handout. But Frydenberg did add that climate change is real, just in case Abbott was listening in. And Lane, we could get a look at the government's energy
1: package. Uh, which will dump the proposal for a clean energy target and focus uh, more on the kind of uh, issues around the electricity market and improving electricity affordability, which we all know is a huge issue. We could get a look at it as soon as next week. Uh, So we've got a sitting week next week. We could get a look at it as soon as next week after it gets approved by cabinet. But let's move on to number three. Number three is maybe nicking off was a good idea. We've had the first polling for the state seat, Nick Xenophon is quitting federal politics for. It's called Hartley and it's in Adelaide's East. The first round of Galaxy polling by the Adelaide Advertiser has Xenophon leading fifty-three to forty-seven in a two-candidate race against the current Liberal member. That is some good number, Nick Xenophon. That is some very good, good number. Um I also read a story this week about how candidates for South Australia best uh have this interesting clause in the and in, in the registration form that they sign where they need to agree to donate twenty thousand dollars up front before they could even be chosen as a candidate for pre selection. So twenty dollars up front, a donation to the party which is completely non refundable. Um And you will be asked to either fundraise or donate the 60 to 80K it costs to run your local campaign. Uh, Someone from SA Best told me that basically the business model they have is that candidates donate these big lump sums to the party, and then they have to donate or fundraise all of the local campaign money on top of that. And then on top of that, the party gets money back from the Electoral Commission based on voter turnout. So it's something like $3 a vote. Uh, And then that money the party puts back into their coffers claiming it's uh, election expenses. So it leaves candidates out of pocket of all this money. Now, SA Best said to me, well, candidates know what they're signing up for. But, I mean, it's it's quite an extraordinary amount of money, especially, and I think it's a bit ironic, from a party that says they want to stand up for those who feel they have no voice and represent the kind of common sense middle political ground. I don't know too many people who can, can be out of pocket for 20K plus you know, especially in it, like they'll have to do it before the end of the year when, when they need to sign up for the March state election in South Australia. But I mean, considering yeah. it also you have to be able to take a huge amount of time off work, potentially unpaid, to campaign in the first place.
3: Yeah, or if they do have that kind of money lying around, it's going for a house deposit, right? Like, yeah, not... Who, who's got $20,000 <laughs> in
1: cash, they can just like withdraw out of the bank today and just be like, here, go sign me up. I will be a candidate. Um, yeah. But uh, it's, and this is all quite funny considering that. Uh, so, last week when Xenophon made his big announcement, he also um, announced the f- first six candidates that were going to run with him. Uh, and one of them has already been dumped from the party because these pictures emerged of him holding his fist to a wax figure of Rihanna. At Madame Tussauds with the caption, It's Chris, baby, which is obviously a reference to the domestic violence perpetrated on Rihanna by her ex boyfriend. And there were also mm-hmm. pictures of him groping a wax figure of Tony Collette. So, interesting times in the uh, SA Best and Nick Xenophon team amalgamation of political parties down there in South Australia.
3: Number four, number four. We found out this week that top secret technical information about new fighter jets, Navy vessels, and surveillance aircraft was stolen. From an Australian defence contractor way back in November last year, and Australia's cybersecurity agency nicknamed the hacker Alf after Alf Stewart, the character from Home and Away.
1: You flaming mongrels, stealing all our data! <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes, I have heard that this is apparently the joke you make about Alf, who I am unfamiliar with as a character.
1: You are unfamiliar with Alf Stewart, who runs the diner. On home and away?
0: I'll do more than Bernie's flame and shit dear.
3: Y- Yes, no, I've I I don't know this man.
1: Are you familiar with Harold Bishop, who used to run the diner on Neighbors?
3: No, I haven't seen Neighbors either. Oh. <laughs> Oh, gosh, nice. <laughs> the, the point is that ALF, this hacker, um, no one knows who ALF is or what country they could be in or who it was that they stole the info from. But we do know that ALF stole 30 gigabytes of data over three months, including technical information about the $16 billion F-35 joint strike fighter and the JDAM, JDAM, and that's a smart bomb. So the hacker was reading the chief engineer's emails, the finance person's emails, the contractor's emails, and this was all commercial incompetence information, not NATSEC information or military information, so it wasn't classified. But how did this happen? Well, Alice, you won't believe it. It was sloppy admin. Mm. The company hadn't updated Mm. its software. They had the default username and passwords for its logins. And the admin password to enter the company's local server was admin and the guest password was guest. So there you go. That is, Are um, you telling me
1: I need to update my, my password? If your
3: password is password123, it- <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> um, and the hacker also used a backdoor remote shell. So, Alice, that is why everyone is talking about a hacker named ALF this week. ALF. ALF. ALF the hacker. Alf. What's number five?
1: Number five is a New Zealand election update, Lane. Uh, Lane, the update is there is still no update from across the ditch. Are you serious? Come on, Winston Peters. It has been more than three weeks of meetings, yeah. but we are getting closer. So on Thursday night this week, Winston Peters took the two pitches... To the new zealand first board and caucus so one pitch for forming government with national and one pitch for forming government with labor he wants a unanimous decision by the board and caucus but he said because of new zealand being such a large country and trying to organize people <laughs> that might not happen until uh saturday sunday or even monday so we're still in government caretaker mode. Uh, James O'Doherty from Sky News, who is in uh, Wellington Parliament and has been basically like sitting outside the meeting rooms where all of this has been happening, yeah. um, has said that there is – no one like there's literally nothing for anyone to do other than wait like pitch to winston peters and then wait um so the uh advisors to all the senior ministers have been spotted going to the parliamentary gym a couple of times a day and you know bill english took a holiday last weekend because what else can he do really
3: i would have thought that bill english needed to like hang around so he was there if you know winston peters had any emergency queries or anything no
1: well, as someone pointed out to me, you know, he does have a phone and well get phone calls, Yeah, but. okay. Like, yeah, sure. <laughs> but I think sure. Winston Peters seems to me, as we learnt last week about how much he loves fishing and cleaning his boat, he seems very Monday to Friday for me. Okay. So if you want to take a sneaky long weekend, I reckon he'd be up for it. But the only thing, Lane, that I can tell you is, uh, in terms of the negotiations, Jacinda Arden took in a homemade ginger loaf into her meeting with Winston Peters this week. Um... Bill English did not take any snacks. He just took policies. Well. So interesting strategy well, we'll there. What will win out? From both snacks nights. or policies? Snacks and policies or just policies? Yes. I yeah. mean Okay, now it is time for a update on that thing called the postal survey. The
3: controversial same-sex marriage postal vote. This
1: plebiscite on same-sex marriage. Postal vote.
4: Postal plebiscite. The postal plebiscite or survey or whatever it is on same-sex marriage... <laughs>
3: Okay, so we got another update from the ABS this week, Alice. Now 10 million Australians have weighed in on other people's marriages. Woohoo! That's 62.5% of eligible voters, which means that we've beaten the turnout in Ireland's referendum on marriage in 2015. So they had a 60.5% turnout, and we're currently at 62.5%, and that will rise a, a little bit, I think. Suck it, Ireland. Suck it. <laughs> Of course, the two votes are very different in that Ireland had to have a referendum and it was a binding vote to change the constitution. And we uh, do not need to be having this survey. So I think one interesting thing to note about the update is that the rate of survey forms coming in has slowed considerably. There were 9.2 million in the first two and a half weeks of the survey, and then just an extra 800,000 in the week after that, leading up to the last update. And so this is actually in line with what campaigners have told me about uh, how postal ballots tend to run. People tend to vote early or not at all. So it will be interesting to see how far the numbers do rise from here. I mean, I think it's definitely fair to say they're going to go up a little bit as the campaigns try and eke out every last survey form they can from the community. But how much they do and whether that uh, number keeps declining in terms of how many come in every week, I think that's going to be the thing to watch. So the second big story around this week, Alice, was a huge donation from the Anglican Diocese of Sydney to the No campaign. They handed over $1 million last month to the Coalition for Marriage. I broke this story on Monday evening after the Archbishop of Sydney, Glenn Davies, announced the donation to the Synod meeting that afternoon. He said the stakes are high and the cost is high in the marriage debate. And there was a huge amount of interest in the story because the campaigns have not been transparent at all about where their money is coming from. What we do know is that quantum to CEO Alan Joyce donated $1 million of his own money to the Yes campaign, and that the Coalition for Marriage has had a bunch of anonymous donors matching donations up to about $600,000. But for most part, either side loves to pretend they have much less money than the other side, and it's pretty unclear who is telling the truth. There's a lot of back and forth about who has the biggest bucket of money and rah, rah, rah. Anyway, after the story of the Anglican donation broke, there are a number of Anglican priests from the Sydney Diocese and around Australia who spoke out against the the decision. And I interviewed a few for a story earlier in the week. Reverend Andrew Semple of the St. James King Street Church told me, I think this donation suggests we are more interested in politics than people. And I think that may be a bad thing for us. He said, what we should be doing is humbly trying to persuade people of a point of view rather than judging and condemning them. We're doing too much judging and condemning and by putting our money into this sort of political process, we seem to be on the wrong side of grace. So it was not a a uniformly supported donation across the Anglican Church and that included uh, leaders who were voting yes and also those who were voting no. The other thing that happened this week, Alice, is that the Immigration Minister, Peter Dutton, who dreamt up this whole postal survey business in the first place and is a no supporter, thinks yes is going to win. He said that in no uncertain terms on Wednesday night. Alice, what do you think Dutton's playing out here? Why did he say that? I'm
1: so glad you've come to me to read into what Peter Dutton is doing.
3: Um, I think that, look, there's a... Yeah, I want in- your your political insight.
1: <laughs> so the comments what he made were really interesting. So you could interpret it in, in, in a bunch of different ways. Like, you could be kind of cynical and say, oh, he's playing the underdog. He really thinks that, you know... You know, classic election strategy is you never go out saying you're going to win because it disencourages people to vote for you. Because if you if you say oh we've got it we've got it in the bag like Turnbull did last election, then it kind of undermines your like it undermines your your your, your vulnerability to people and and so people think oh well I, they don't need my support so I won't throw it behind them. Um, but I you know I also think that uh, what he said was was. It's difficult because you've got the Greens and the Labor Party who control the Senate and we've only got a one-seat majority in the lower house, but we do need adequate protections and I think people would expect that... From the party so this reads to me like he's telling all of his colleagues across the spectrum so liberals and and conservatives I will do what I can but this bill is going to pass anyway and there's only so much that we can do on the way through but I am doing the best I can so he's kind of put his hand up saying that he's going to be a leader in the um, negotiations which uh, and and it's, it, which, which are going to be really it's going to be really uh, tough um, and really tight because they have given themselves this deadline of Christmas to get this all done and I don't know whether they can do it
3: I don't know. It it is going to be really tough. And, you know, the interesting thing to watch here is that who's going to be, you know, crossing the floor isn't exactly the accurate way to describe this. But just in terms of departing from the majority vote of their party, uh, who is going to be crossing the floor? In, when it comes to the, the religious exemptions that people are talking about, I mean, which Liberals are going to depart from perhaps the Conservative bulk of the party who want stronger protections in order to not roll back certain parts of our current anti discrimination law? And which people in the Labour Party are going to cross the floor over, over the other way and say, we actually want really strong religious protections, whereas the bulk of Labour seems to support the protections provided for in the Smith Bill for religious ministers? And, and you know, there's a window for, for civil celebrants who are religious and then there's also protections for religious organizations so it is going to be really really interesting to watch um and alice i think that's the postal survey woo-hoo. update for this week as ever we will have more next week
1: only four weeks to go four weeks to go um
3: <laughs> 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 woohoo
1: Now, as we mentioned earlier this week, Tony Abbott was in England uh, giving a speech about how climate change saves lives. Uh, Maybe he's also there to give Theresa May some tips on uh, how to avoid a leadership spill. But with all this going on, (laughs) we thought we needed to bring in an expert on UK and Australian politics, our man on the ground in London, baby. That was a Friends reference, Lane. That was a reference to the television program Friends to continue my trend of referencing things that you don't understand.
3: I haven't seen Friends. I thought so. <laughs> anyway, this week I stayed back late and Mark Stefano got up very early over in the UK and we had a Skype chat. Here it is. Mark Stefano, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me
4: back, uh, co-host of the podcast, Lane I, it's It's... It's so good to hear your voice. It's
3: so good to hear yours as well. Um, first off, how are you enjoying London?
4: Look, it's grey. It's rainy. <laughs> uh, there are some whinging palms about, but the political system is uh, all over the place at the moment. I feel as though that I've taken the virus of leadership tension um, and brought it to brought it to the UK because I've been here for three weeks and already. Um, people are talking about changing the leadership. so it's it's one of those um, I, I kind of feel as though it's 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 not them, it's me, so it, it's been it's been a tough ride so far.
3: Before I ask you the the big question and the namesake of this podcast, firstly, <laughs> I understand that you were actually at the the Tory conference where she delivered the speech that went viral around the world for all the wrong reasons. Can you give us a rundown of of what happened and was it what it was like to actually be there?
4: Yeah, look, and I think just a, a bit of background to this, there were three things that actually happened at this this speech. So um, party conferences in the UK happen annually, so they happen every year where they all get together in, in one city. So it was in Manchester at the Tory conference, and Theresa May has been struggling a little bit with her leadership. Um, she's been trying to get Brexit happening, but it's not really been working because she's got these painful, loud people in her cabinet, um, led by Boris Johnson, who's the um, leader of the Leave campaign um, to get out of the EU. So, against the backdrop of all of this sort of tension within her party, everyone was talking about this big speech in Manchester. It's quite weird, right? So, not only do they all get around um, a conference for um, a week, but they actually, it all sort of culminates in the big speech by the leader and it's televised and it goes for an hour so it's not just this sort of short 15 20 minute speech Theresa May when she stands up she actually goes on and speaks for at least one hour right so she stands up all eyes are on her Um, I was in the media room at the time and there was sort of this clamour in the media room, and we we looked around, and someone was sort of giving her a piece of paper on stage. And everyone was like, "What's happened?" And a few people said, "Oh no, she's clearly just dropped her speech, and someone's just picked it up and given it to her." But it quickly became apparent that it actually was a prankster a comedian, right, <laughs> who had actually handed her a P45, which is the traditional form that um you fill out when you um when you lose a job. So, and on the P45 was scribbled that you know. Theresa May and, you know, reason for unemployment, employment, Boris Johnson, all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And he was bundled out of the conference centre and there was this basically sprint to the exits to the media room and I started, like, you know, sprinting after um, what was essentially the clamour of everything that was going on. And uh, he was being let out, the comedian, and he was being sort of bundled out in one of the sort of scariest scrums I've ever seen. Cameramen were just falling everywhere and um, and security and police who were just yelling at journalists to get back, get back. So during that time, as we I followed the, the comedian out and got his name and found out what the whole stunt was about, I, I started ending up back at the conference. And during that time, people started talking about, you know, she's had a coughing fit. And I thought, oh, look, she's probably just had a couple of, a couple of um, clearing of the throats, mm. but then when you watch it back, you just see that she's, and and a lot of uh, actors and other people have been talking about this recently. They talk about how your your throat closes up when you've got anxiety or when you're nervous and things like that, and that's actually what happened. She she clearly got it got into her head what it had actually just had happened. She'd accepted this form. She'd put it onto the ground. One of the things that I was so amazed by was the fact that just. The comedian had done it perfectly, so had got the form in the most beautiful way, so that when she he had handed it to Theresa May, it really did look like she was accepting the um, the unemployment form, and she was she was coughing her way through the speech, and then oh, and it's just like the third thing that occurred, and it it really is just it was like something out of thick of it or some sort of Veep style show. She's standing there. And behind her, letters start falling off the, um, the, the, the sign behind her. Oh, it was like no. a country that works for everyone. And it w- there was interesting speculation about this, right? So everyone was like, why did they just start falling now? Like, it's so bizarre that, like, all week these letters had stayed up. It turned out that they were magnets as in they were magnetised onto the, like, sort of fabric of the behind the stage. Oh, my God. And so, what had happened, so what had happened is because for the first time in the week, people really, really clapping and standing up and the heat of the lights, of the TV lights, what had happened, the magnets had started to fall off. So, it was actually caused by people in the room clapping so much. That was the reason why the the, the letters started falling off. So... Look, it was one of the more surreal, um, you know, hours of political theatre, of recent UK political history, because it kind of felt as though that, like, you know, if one of those things happened, you know, the letters or the the comedian or the coughing, one of those things happened, that's all that people would have talked about. But because they all happened at once, there was kind of this really resigned, like, you know, and we were speaking to some Tory MPs after and just being like, you know, she she just battled through, and and they were really they had a lot of respect for how she dealt with the whole situation because it all just happened at once. So, you know, it was as I say, it was so bizarre and so dramatic that like something like this hasn't really happened in it, it hasn't really happened in Australia in the last couple of years. And it just poor Theresa May that like that this this has had all happened to her at once when all eyes were on her.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, in the wake of the speech, as you say, there was just it was. You know, tremendous! This kind of meeting of of everything that could possibly go wrong. What's happened afterwards? Is it on with Theresa May?
4: (laughs) Well, and look, and maybe it's the the nature of this podcast. I would love to just sort of give a bit of a background to like actually what happens next, because it's not like the same thing um, with uh, with Australia when how a spill is called. There's a couple of ways that you know they can dislodge Theresa May and. The the issue at the moment is the only real leadership contender, the only real person in the in the in the wings that is prepared to take on is Boris Johnson. And Boris Johnson, as I said earlier, is the the guy who led the Brexit vote. He's the former London mayor. Many people sort of see him as a Donald Trump-style character. He's both loved by the people that love him and then reviled by the people that hate him. Um, but. The issue is is that there needs to actually be 15% of the Tory caucus, the Tory backbench, 15%, which is 47 of them, need to sign a letter that actually, uh, you know, is a vote of no confidence in Theresa May. Once that gets to 47, it triggers a no confidence vote in, um, in the Prime Minister and then there's a leadership spill. So what happens then would be, there is. Um, they all get together. So all of the Tory MPs, they all get together in a room. And they vote. Uh, the people put their name in about who who should be leader, and they it gets down to two. So say let's pretend that it finally gets down to Theresa May and Boris Johnson, because we can we can probably you know, if it does get to a stage where there's a no confidence vote, we could probably assume that Boris Johnson will be part of it. Um, you know, let's say that Theresa May feels as though that she's going to battle through. So it's Boris Johnson and Theresa May. And then actually what happens, the, those two go into like a, a, a month-long um, leadership election with the Tory membership. So it's actually the rank and file of the party that, that make the final decision. So, if, if this did, does happen, if we go far enough for the Prime Minister to lose her job, we've actually seen months of you know campaigning and that sort of thing, which a lot of the people within the party really don't want at the moment because they're negotiating a Brexit deal and they're negotiating with these Frenchies and these Italians and these Germans and they're trying to figure out a way to, to get out of the EU with a really good deal. So. A lot of backbench Tory MPs don't want to replace Theresa May right now. They want Theresa May to be like a blast shield. They want her to continue on at least for a year or two to finally get a deal. And then, like, essentially they don't want to waste any of their talent in the party during a time where they're going to get a really tough time from the media and from, from the public. So is it on? You know, it, it, is, it does definitely feels as though that there's something in the works, but... I think that most of the political campaigners, sorry, most of the political commentators in this country are sort of saying, it could be on before Christmas, or alternatively, um, you know, it'll happen in, um, sometime during twenty nineteen. That Theresa May will have um, a revolt on the backbench on her hands. I mean, and then the, I guess the the only other thing I should add is that she can leave at any stage, so she can be visited by quote unquote, they talk about the grey suits. When you get a visit by the grey suits, it's sort of like the senior Tory, the senior Tory sort of um, top people within the party, right. she could get a visit by those people, and they say to her, "Hey, Theresa, it's time. It's time to step step down." And and those grey suit, those grey suits could be people like um, the former, the former Prime Minister John Major. You know, he's been described as someone who could actually step in and tell Theresa May, "No, it's time to go. The party is is." need to leave for the for the sake of the party. So it all could happen quickly, which you know, she could get a visit from these these um these conservative senior figures within the party, or she could have a revolt on her hands that happens much more slower and that it could go over over many months. So it's a it's a bizarre situation because it's kind of not like the same thing that we're used to in Australia where You've got, like, in many ways, people are waking up with a new prime minister. This is this is a long and drawn out process, and uh, Theresa May is just b- battling through it at the moment.
3: So, are the grey suits that come are they kind of the the equivalent of the faceless men in the you know Bill Shorten wielding a knife in the the Rudd Gillard Rudd era?
4: You could not have put it better, Lane. That is exactly right. <laughs> it, it, okay, it is. Um, it, it's a bizarre it's a bizarre sort of uh, saying in. UK politics.
3: You were at the, you were at not just the Tory conference, but you've also in the last few weeks been at the Labour conference too. I wanted to ask if there were any little moments or particularly funny stories. I suppose the UK equivalent of a gallery whisper, although we won't whisper because we're already on Skype and I'm worried about the audio, (laughs) Um, but does anything come to mind? What should people know about what it was like to be at the conferences?
4: So um, other, uh, the the Tory conference was in Manchester, but the the Labour one was in Brighton. So it was down south. Yeah. Um, on the seaside, and Labor is in a bizarre situation at the moment because for a couple last couple of years they've been the running joke within the media and the press because Jeremy Corbyn has emerged, and is uh, he's, he's reviled and hated by so many people um, uh, who control the media in this country, and and people and newspapers like the Daily Mail and the Sun um, have run front pages that have just absolutely mocked him. But it turns out that Jeremy Corbyn's you know has put together a suite of policies that the electorate have really enjoyed. And and we saw earlier this year in the 2017 general election that clearly people are liking what Jeremy Corbyn is putting down. So he's also become this weird cult figure um, within young people, young labour movements. And I'm sure the listeners would have heard by now that there's this chant to Seven Nation Army, and it goes, oh, Jeremy Corbyn, yeah. oh, Jeremy Corbyn. And what happens with um, any time that Jeremy Corbyn comes out on stage, Everybody in the room starts singing this song. So, I mean, I was at I was at Labour conference at Momentum, which is the left wing activist group, part of Labour um, that has essentially been the grassroots reason behind Jeremy Corbyn's rise. And this group held a like sort of last night party. And they got Jeremy Corbyn to come out on stage and there was, you know, smoke machines, there was the, the Seven Nation Army song was playing, people were, you know, drinking beers and jumping up and down. It was kind of like something out of, um, you know, it was, it was like something I'd never seen before, that the, the, there was this political leader who was being welcomed like a rock star. And like a genuine rock star, not like a kind of like, oh, you know, um, Kevin Rudd, he was so popular back in 2007 and young people loved him like this is a different kettle of fish because I think what Kevin people in Australia thought that Kevin Rudd you know young people were getting around the whole Kevin 07 thing this is kind of a movement that is is very different it it, it catches people um, and really um, It is like something they're following an icon. uh, They're following a cultural figure. They're following someone who isn't necessarily a politician. And Jeremy Corbyn really does play up to that. He's free. His whole whole life as a politician, he's been the outsider. Who's always been speaking out on things. So, look, there was some there was some interesting things that I saw um, at Labour conference. um, But most of it was just the fact that a lot of young people were getting drunk and um, (laughs) loving the fact that. For the first time in a few years, they felt as though that they're starting to um, they're, they're starting to take back the the agenda, and we already saw that because a week later, when Theresa May did stand up at the Tory conference, there was a lot of policies that Labour were claiming were theirs. So, it's it's a really interesting time in UK politics because Jeremy Corbyn um, is still riding this wave of um, bizarre. Um, you know, cultural relevance. And I think that, you know, Labour in uh, Australia should really take note of the fact that there's so much energy around Jeremy Corbyn at the moment. You think about, I was talking to someone about this, like, Bill Shorten doesn't have that type of charisma. He doesn't have that type of um, X factor that attracts young people to um, want to join and and go out onto the hustings and and campaign for people and I think to myself well like potentially who, who has that who has that ability to to do that so I'm like maybe you think to yourself well Albanese has has potential um, because he's very charismatic and does interesting live TV appearances but he doesn't have the credentials you know he doesn't have the, the left-wing policies of Jeremy Corbyn. I just think that sometimes what Jeremy Corbyn is writing, anyway, there's just a lot of energy, and I think that you know we saw it earlier in the year, uh, last year with Bernie Sanders in the U.S. as well. It's like kind of like an anti-politician politician, and um, yeah, I tell you what, it's a it's a fascinating thing to watch, and it's gonna be um, it's gonna be tough for. The conservatives to be going into an election in a couple of years' time when um, young people um, under the age of 40 are all sort of turning out for Labor and and getting behind their policies.
3: Well, Mark, I love that you have become as much of a UK politics nerd as you were an Australian (laughs) politics nerd in just a few short weeks. Um, We miss you, and thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you guys so much.
0: I like the woman.
2: I like the the the
1: Nice to see that things haven't changed for for young Mark DiStefano over there in uh, UK town.
3: Exactly. It was so nice to talk to him.
1: I think that we should wrap up with a quick bin juice, Lane's least favourite segment before we go. Uh, first up, Lane, I will go first. Um, I uh, wanted to pull a story out of the bin that I have been forward sizzling in the podcast for the last two weeks. The Victorian Greens
3: can confirm the sizzle.
1: (laughs) There's been weeks of speculation as to who would replace Greg Barber in the uh, state's party's top job, so it's leader of the Victorian Greens in the Victorian State Parliament. Um, He announced he was quitting politics after 11 years last month. Um, And, you know, their choice has taken a few people by surprise because it's an unusual move lane. Um, The person that they've picked as party leader doesn't currently hold a seat in Parliament.
3: Ooh, that is interesting.
1: Samantha Ratnam is her name. She is the youngest ever, the first female, and her family immigrated to Australia from Sri Lanka when she was just in her early teens. But she's not actually in Parliament yet. She's quit her job as a Moreland councillor. You might remember Moreland Council. They were the third council in Victoria to uh, ban celebrations on Australia Day, and the council meeting this week was also invaded by uh, some some pretty... uh, Uh, loud and violent protesters uh, protesting them. I think the movement um, opposing Change the Date is called Save the Date and they were Save the Date protesters. Um, So, yeah, so Samantha Morland quit her job as uh, a Morland councillor. She used to be the mayor in Morland. She was the first Greens... Mayor in Victoria, which is interesting, um, but she uh, but she hasn't yet taken uh, Barbara's vacated seat in Parliament. So Samantha Ratnam gave me a call an hour or so after it was announced that she was taking the top job of the Greens in Victoria to explain to me just basically how it's all going to work. And just a warning: this is a phone call. It was recorded on the phone. It is not the best audio quality, but uh, but she said some interesting things. So just bear through for me. <laughs>
0: You've taken on the job as party leader before you have entered parliament. Um, I was thinking in my head, it's kind of like what Campbell Newman did in Queensland, which is a strange comparison to make yes, between it is a Victorian Green and a Liberal. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> oh, how, how, how does it work? When are you taking up your seat in the Upper House of Victorian State Parliament?
2: So we're just waiting for the confirmation of the joint sitting for the swearing-in. after the sort of government has to decide that. We're discussing it with them at the moment, and. Uh, Hope to have a date very soon, but we're hopeful it's going to be in the next um, week. They meet, they sit next week again, so we're hopeful it's going to be in that week.
0: It's not like you're a political outsider, though. You've been a councillor and a mayor and you've run for a federal seat before. But I guess some people might be surprised that someone from outside Parliament was chosen for the job. What was your pitch to the party room?
2: Look, we're in a really exciting place uh, with the Victorian Greens um, where poised on a number of fronts for some electoral, uh, for the new electoral ground. We've got a by-election coming up in four weeks. We've got a big state election uh, campaign coming up next year. And um, as you uh, might have read as well, the commentary uh, suggesting the Greens are, of course, in an excellent position uh, to make some breakthroughs uh, in the lower house, more breakthroughs in the lower house. So, um, you know, I'm really putting myself forward, both to work uh, for great policy outcomes um, to make the state more progressive, um, to work on the environment, social justice, uh, but also to work on our electoral goals and be out there campaigning and supporting those campaigns to get more people elected, more Greens elected to this parliament. Mm.
0: There were, you have a few colleagues in in state parliament though that uh, have, have been sitting there for a few years. Do you think anyone was a bit, a bit hurt that maybe they, that you were chosen above them
2: since you haven't entered yet? They've been really fantastic, very supportive. Uh, I've been really humbled that I've had their trust and confidence, Uh and it was wonderful to reach a consensus decision on this. Uh So, yeah, they've been incredibly supportive, and I'm really lucky to have their support. Now, you're the first female leader, but you're also the
0: youngest ever leader and the first-generation first, first generation Australian leader. That is our yeah. first.
2: That's right. Um, Look, you don't uh, envisage—I haven't envisaged in this position—you know, thinking about it in those terms. Even when I started on council, you know, it was about wanting to give back to my local community. um, Really wanting to
0: to be elected as a mayor in Victoria. That's
2: right. That's right. So I haven't often thought about it in terms of first, but I have put myself forward with um, all the energy and enthusiasm uh, to be able to create some change and help out. So that's how I've uh, moved through those roles, um, putting myself forward, forward, wanting to help out, and um, yeah, it's been an incredible journey so far. Yeah, well, I think a lot of the
0: excitement online today has been uh, around the fact that you know, even though you haven't really thought about it, that you are some of these, you are three of these first. Uh, Have yeah. you? Does that? Do, do you kind of think that maybe that will uh, having your having a different background coming to the role that will change the way you take the job or you look at the job?
2: I think we all bring different skills and experiences, life experiences and worldviews as well to these jobs, and that's what makes it really wonderful. That's what makes politics really wonderful. I've reflected on my time at council when I sat on a council with really diverse views. There was no real clear majority of political party, for example, but that actually made us sit and think about ideas from different perspectives and made for better outcomes. I believe in that time. Uh, So I think that diversity is really good to encourage in all our decision-making bodies. Uh, And Mm. there's different types of diversity, diversity of views, diversity of life experiences, etc. And I'm hopeful as well that it can help pave the way for more people to feel encouraged, to put their hand up and feel like they have a place there and they can do it. Um, I think a lot of people, um, you know, depending on your experience, uh, for example, there might be many migrants who think, you know, they don't feel like it's their place to put themselves up for elected representation, but I would say absolutely it's your place. You bring such a unique perspective and uh, way of working in the community that we need in our decision-making body. So I'm hopeful that it encourages more people to put themselves forward as well.
0: Now for people who might not be aware of your background, you were born in England, but you also grew up in Sri Lanka, but why did That's your right. family decide to, to move to Australia?
2: Well, there was a long, protracted, um, terrible war that took over Sri Lanka for um, over 30 years. And um, from a Tamil background and like hundreds and thousands of other Tamils, uh, we had to, we left because the situation got really, really bad. Uh, so we migrated to Canada first before coming to Australia, but there are hundreds of thousands of Tamils um, all over the world um, that had to leave because of the war and that was the reason we left too. I
0: wonder if you're the first uh Tamil political leader in Australia. I think I think you I
2: Possibly it. possibly that's right. I haven't looked into that, but I I think so actually. Oh,
0: wow, congratulations.
2: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we'll, we'll add it to the list. Um <laughs> uh
0: now you the so the council so you stepped down from council this week to take up yes. uh this, this this new job. But the council you've stepped down um from is uh Moreland Council which within yes. the news this week because yes, it was stormed absolutely. by protesters. Now That's you right, were, I was there last night. <laughs> yeah, and so can you, can you just explain the background? So you led the council becoming the third council in Victoria that said they were no longer going to be involved in Australia Day celebrations. Is that where it started?
2: Uh but, but that's where it started, that's right, so um, I'm the, I've been the Chair of the Reconciliation Committee, I was the Chair of the Committee for five years since I started on Council, uh, and it was actually the work started from that committee, our advisory committee, which is their job to advise Council on Reconciliation Matters, uh, and they've done a number of great things, and we've actually moved a lot of things away from Australia really there anyway, based on their recommendations, and we actually put up a motion in June, based on their recommendations from the committee, I took that to the full Council. So the committee has asked us to move our citizenship ceremony away from Australia Day um, as a mark of respect in recognising um, how difficult the day is for our Aboriginal community. Um, that was voted down in June, but then we kept working on the strategy and what we brought back a couple of months later um, was not a resolution of the citizenship ceremony, but it was a broader motion similar to the ones that both Yara and Darabin uh, proposed um, around uh, uh, joining the campaign uh, to move the date of Australia Day.
0: And the protesters, uh, that came, that stormed through this week were, uh, quite aggressive and quite vocal. How yes. did, you, how did you feel about uh, that?
2: Absolutely. Look, it, it was really, really upsetting and it was upsetting for the councillors, the community members in the gallery mostly and the staff. And, and I say that as well because the, uh, the en- entrances that they come through, uh, come through the gallery so the community members hear it and feel it first. So actually it was terribly upsetting for the members of the community um, most strongly. And I was there for the first protest, which was a few weeks ago, and then there last night as well. Uh, They were much more aggressive and um, threatening, and it was a a terrible situation. And um, yeah, we absolutely condemn that. Is the council going
0: to to hold strong on the the Change the Date campaign, even though the federal government are... Are seemingly on the side of these protesters and, and wanting the council just to, to celebrate Australia Day on the day that they've chosen?
2: Absolutely. Council will not be deterred and we're very resolved in our position. Um, we uh work with our community work with our reconciliation advisory committee we've had incredible support since that motion was resolved uh and that was really eye-opening for me as well like you know you expect a, a few people opposing to write to you but i've been overwhelmed by support in this instance which has been really incredible to see so we've got the backing of our community as well so we won't be deterred they're not going to change our position um what they are doing is disenfranchising community members who come to a a council meeting in good faith to talk to councillors and they're actually interrupting them. Well, Samantha Ratnam, thanks so much for coming to me and congratulations thanks. again. Thanks so much, Alice. Lovely to chat. Speak to you soon. I like the Walmart. I like the Walmart. I like, the Walmart.
1: <laughs> I like the Walmart. Okay, that was new Victorian Greens leader, Samantha Ratnam there. And, uh, Lane, if there's one thing I love, it's leadership spells. And by golly, do the Greens throw the most secretive spills? (laughs) It's all worked out behind closed doors. There's no leaking. There's obviously some dissent, but no one ever knows about it. Uh, It's very, very interesting. Lane, what have you pulled out of the bin this week?
3: Alice, did you know that some Australians won the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize?
1: No, really.
3: Really? That's right. The International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons became the first Australian-founded organisation to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize this year. They did important work highlighting the effects of the two nuclear bombs the British government dropped in the desert outside an Indigenous community in South Australia. And, you know, it had impacts such as making people sick, go blind, people dying prematurely. But after ICANN was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has not publicly acknowledged their win. And ICANN think it's really shameful that the PM didn't congratulate them. So why didn't the PM congratulate them? Well, Australia has not signed the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And when Julie Bishop was at the UN last month, she didn't attend the signing of the treaty. And that's probably because the Australian government relies on the US nuclear arsenal for security and remember last week that the pm said security is what gives us freedom so a spokesperson for the pm said the treaty would not advance nuclear disarmament despite more than 100 states signing it and it would not enhance security but the spokesperson said and i quote the australian government shares with the international community the goal of a peaceful and secure world free of nuclear weapons so that is my quick binge Alice.
1: I think it's really funny looking at the comments that Malcolm Turnbull made last week about um, how security gives us freedom. But, you know, security doesn't always uh, keep us free from hacking, doesn't it, <laughs>
3: Well, not if your passwords are admin and guest, Alice. (laughs) We've all learned that this week.
1: Um, Okay, that's all we've got time for this week. I want to say a big thank you to our producer, Nicholas Ray, Josh Taylor, Nicola Harvey, Richard James, Peter Holm and the whole pod team. A big thank you to Rode Microphones for supporting the podcast. You can go to buzzfeed.com slash is it on or subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcasting app and leave a rating and a review. Now, I know that the embed has been broken Um, but I have just been uh, in furious consultation with uh, the people that run our website, and I've just gotten it fixed. So if you listen via embedding or you know someone that does, I have fixed the problem. A lot like me has fixed it. It's amazing. Um, Anyway, uh, we'll be back uh, next week with another episode. Uh, It is a sitting week next week, but strangely enough, Lane and I will be recording the podcast from Sydney, where we are going to the Publisher Awards, where maybe, Lane, just maybe, this little podcast could win an award, but probably not. But probably not.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. Be a bit more optimistic, I think. You never know. But maybe. You never know. You never know.
1: know. Um, I'm at Workman Alice on Twitter. She's at Lane Sainty.
3: I am at Lane Sainty. And thank you to everyone who slid into my DMs this week. Please do it again. What did they
1: say? What did they say?
3: Oh, this and that. Some nice love things, bin juice. You're some not so nice things. No one has, actually, plenty of people have added me about bin juice, but no one's actually DM'd me about bin juice. Um, but you Someone know, if you want to, that's fine. said to
1: me last week, Lane's yeah. bin juice last week was very good.
3: <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. I feel like we need to kill the Lane hates bin juice meme and get on with our lives. All right. All right. Alice, I've got to ask, and it's an exciting week to be asking this question, I think. Mm. Is it on?
1: Here is what Peter Dutton said this week when asked if he had leadership aspirations. Quote, you don't sign up to play for the Wallabies or the Socceroos or for the Australian Cabinet to not be leader or have the opportunity to become leader one day.
3: Well, okay, firstly, one one of those things is not like the other. (laughs) All right, Peter Dutton.
1: (laughs) But then he went on to say recent history has demonstrated that anyone uh, trying to burst into the leadership or try to knock off a leader um, is kind of uh, doesn't put themselves up for a, for a long term career. Yeah. Um, and uh, his perspective is that loyalty is the new black, which is like just the most embarrassing phrase I've ever heard Peter Dun say. And I think you're better off being loyal to leaders and if things work out how you want them to, then that's a great thing. But in the best interest of the party, it's the best interest of the party to have a stability of leadership at the moment because ultimately it'll be good for our country and then if that's rewarded at some point or if you're foolish because of that an opportunity passes you by, then so be it. So it was kind of saying like, I will let Malcolm Turnbull um, burn himself out and then I will be rewarded for not destabilising him <laughs> by giving the job of Prime Minister, which is just a fantastic um, uh, turn of phrase. Yeah. But, um, we also have a little bit of speculation this uh-huh. week after uh, Tony Abbott's speech. The T-Man, as James Campbell from the Herald Sun has been calling <laughs> him, uh, he wrote a column saying that uh, according to three Conservatives, Uh, previously Abbott-supporting Conservatives. MPs who have spoken to the Herald Sun in recent weeks when talking about the possibility of regaining the leadership. James Campbell wrote this week, according to three Conservatives, previously Abbott-supporting, MPs who have spoken to the Herald Sun in recent weeks when talking about the possibility of regaining the leadership, Abbott has asked all of them about how they would feel about bringing Peter back, Peter being... Uh, Peter Credlin, Tony Abbott's former Chief of Staff, who uh, I will give the final word of the podcast to because she said this in response on Paul Murray Live on Sky News on Thursday night. Enjoy. Yep.
2: Journos, 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 and a Labor outsider, no one is going to tell you in the Liberal Party what is really going on. They are more likely the Conservatives to tell me, and I think you are all kiss and wind.
1: All right, that's all we got this week, but we will be back next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.